This is Perspectives, the show where a look at how we're different often shows us how much we really have in common. I'm Condis Presley. Friends, it has been a week. Many of us are social distancing or simply staying home because of COVID-19 coronavirus. There is increased demand for accurate news and information with context. On our show today is Wanda Lloyd. She is a retired journalist, a woman who grew up in the segregated South, but also grew up to hold the top job at a major newspaper. All this month, I featured strong women as March is Women's History Month, and Wanda Lloyd is no exception. Her book is called Coming Full Circle, From Jim Crow to Journalism. Wanda Lloyd, thank you for joining me. Hi, Condes. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Our audience does not know your story. I set it up a little. Tell us how you came to be. Well, my book is the story of a, a young girl who grew up in the segregated South, as you said, who dared to become a daily newspaper journalist despite all of the restrictive laws that said, I couldn't do this. Uh, but I really felt like, you know, I, I learned at an early age that my calling was writing and journalism and you know, like a lot of journalists, I was always nosy about stories and wanted to tell good stories. And so I dared to become a daily newspaper journalist and succeeded. I think I exceeded my expectations by becoming a leader, and we can talk about that later. But this has really been my passion for a long, long time. When did you know that you had a knack for writing and then later becoming an editor? I guess it was in high school. I took a journalism class in the 11th grade, and um, at the end of the 11th grade, my journalism teacher called me aside and said she noticed that I had the ability to lead because a lot of the other students were coming with me, students in the class and on the on the newspaper staff. I, and she said people were coming to me and she could tell that they were asking for my help with their stories about who the sources should be, helping, you know, helping to sort of go through their stories and refine it a little bit. And she said, I think you should be the editor-in-chief of the newspaper next year. And I decided really at the end of the 11th grade, as I was transitioning to become editor-in-chief, that this was something I really wanted to do. And so I, I, that was when I think I really made that transition. She also put me in a summer workshop at Savannah State University right here in Savannah for journalism teachers. You know, our journalism teachers never had an opportunity to set foot in a newsroom. So I was learning journalism who was teaching from a book. And so she sent me to this workshop where they were teaching teachers, but they also wanted a few students, six to be exact, to be in this class so that they could teach the teachers how to teach students. And I was one of those pilot students lucky enough to be in that summer program. So it was really at the end of my 11th grade and in going into 12th grade that I declared to my family this was going to be my life's work. Walk our listeners through your journalism career and any mm-hmm. stories that you're open to sharing about your knowing that you had the capacity to be a leader, to be a newsroom leader in an industry that's for so long has been dominated by white men. I worked in seven daily newspaper newsrooms. I've always been an editor, never been a full-time reporter, which is very unusual. Most people start as reporters, but I had the opportunity to start as a copy editor, and I kind of worked my way up from there to become an executive editor. So I worked in newsrooms in Providence, Rhode Island, Miami, the Miami Herald, the Atlanta Journal for a short time, the, the Washington Post, USA Today. Um, then I became managing editor of the newspaper in Greenville, South Carolina, the Greenville News, and executive editor of the newspaper in Montgomery, the Montgomery Advertiser. So working in seven daily news, newsrooms, working my way up the, the, the ladder, 
But really, it was when I was at USA Today that the executive editor pointed out to me that he, of course, he saw leadership in my in my skills level, but he also suggested something that, that I really try to tell young people, especially young women, and that is you need to join professional associations. Those are associations of people who are in your your career, and there are so many opportunities for leadership in these organizations to uh, lead committees, do committee work and lead committees to learn. In my case, I've learned that programming was something that I really enjoyed working in the American Society of Newspaper Editors, putting on the program every year for the annual conference of what we called ASNE, the acronym ASNE, um, working on the diversity committee and then leading the diversity committee, I believe, for four years, two two, two two-year terms. Uh, working on the floor managers committee, working leading the floor managers committee and the nomination committee, and so these are these are experiences that I tell young people all the time. You know, you need to get busy in some organizations, whether you are a college student and you join some college um, uh, associations and become a leader in those, all the way up through the early part of your career and all the way through your career. Very important, and and working with people who can uh, mentor you, but also you can find out what your leadership skills and abilities are. I'm going to take you back in your career a little bit. I see that you spent a little bit of time on the radio broadcast side of the business. What showed you that the newspaper side was definitely where you knew you would thrive? In um, Nashville, Tennessee, I was the executive director of the Freedom Forum Diversity Institute, a time when I took a break for about four and a half years from dealing newspapers, and I was asked to come to, to uh, Vanderbilt University and um, lead this program to train non-traditional students on how to become daily newspaper journalists. And so Dwight Lewis, who is a very notable journalist in Nashville, had worked many years at the Tennessee and, and ended his career, I believe, as um as an editor, but he had been an editorial page writer and also a columnist. Um, he, he suggested that we do this, create this radio show on the Fisk University station, WFSK, in Nashville. And so we had this show called Behind the Headlines. And every Tuesday night for about an hour, for an hour, we interviewed uh, members of Congress who were from that area, other people from around the country who were very involved in civil rights and, and justice and those kinds of topics. And then the second segment, second half hour, we would bring in a local person from the com- someone from the community um, working on certain projects that would benefit the community. So I didn't move over to radio as a permanent thing, but it really kind of in- inspired me that I could do radio someday. And I actually think I could do it again. I'm, I really enjoyed radio. You spent eight years as the executive editor of the Montgomery Advertiser, a newspaper owned by Gannett. What does it mean to be the executive editor of a newspaper? Well, the executive editor is the top uh, editor in a, in a newsroom and really responsible for all the resources and the editorial direction of the newspaper. All of the editors report to the executive editor, sports editor, the features editor, news editor, local news editor, all those folks report to the executive editor. And so it's managing people and resources, that is budget and resources, and making sure that everybody has what they need to do their jobs. It's also being responsible for the content of the newspaper. And while there's a lot of help in the newsroom with that content, someone has to be responsible for knowing what goes on page one every day, 
what when stories uh, appear in the newspaper, sometimes how they appear, the visuals of the newspaper, but it also takes someone with a vision, I think, to run a newsroom, whether it's a newspaper or a television or radio. The vision means where are we going from here? How do we best serve our community? How do we engage our community in the uh, stories that we're doing? And also for me, especially toward the end of my career, and which was driven a lot by technology, how do we transition our staff from just print to print and digital? You know, hiring videographers and figuring out how to do videography. In a, just like uh, those of you who are working in broadcast have to figure out how do you uh, write for the web, which is a different skill than, I think, than writing for broadcast. And so I was, you know, on the cutting edge of ha- helping our newspapers and the Gannett Company. Gannett was the com- is the company that owns the Montgomery Advertiser. Um, I was on the cutting edge of helping us figure out how to do this digital thing, and we launched several websites while I was in Montgomery as executive editor. What is your take on the significant changes in the impact uh, that has been felt by the newspaper industry in, in recent decades? Well, you know, the first part of the decline, a lot of people think it was the digital, but it really was the 2008 recession. And isn't that ironic? Because here we are <laughs> perhaps facing another recession, but that was the first part of the decline. Um, and so having to um, help not only our staff, but I think our readers understand the changes that needed to come about as a result of the the digital as well as the recession and bringing readers along with these changes, helping them to be comfortable with the digital, helping them to be comfortable with the way we were presenting news. You know, we were no longer um, writing these long, what we used to call in newsroom, thumb suckers that would take you an hour to read a story. And, you know, I came from the Washington Post where I worked for 11 years, and we did thumb suckers very well, but people had more time to read. They were commuting on trains and buses more than uh, cars and, and held up in rush hour traffic. Now people are listening to podcasts, for example, um, from newspapers. And so the whole transition has been helping our consumers understand the changes and get comfortable with that. And then there's, you know, on the, um, I guess, cable news networks, we, you know, you and I probably grew up in the, not not exclusively the Walter Cronkite, Cronkite era, but the era when someone would come on local news on television at night and give the news for 30 minutes and it would just be the facts. Now we're listening to people who are giving their opinions all day. And, and we're so, um, you know, separated in terms of the kind of the, the liberal versus the, the conservative stations or the channels that we have. And so those, those are some of the things that I think have changed journalism greatly. But the fundamentals really are still there. The fundamentals, you know, the, I define journalism as the gathering and dissemination of news and information. And that's, that's really still the, the foundation. And, I, you know, and I tried in the book to sort of define some of that and help people understand those fundamentals and how we learn journalism so that they can make an, an informed decision about what they're seeing and reading and listening to these days. Wanda Lloyd, you've written a number of books. What made you want to pen this memoir? Well, this is actually my first book exclusively under my, my byline. Um, I transitioned from daily newsrooms to work at Savannah State as chair of the department, as I, as I mentioned before. 
And I was telling my story to some of the students. They knew that I hadn't been in the academy working in a, in a university, university all my career, and they really were interested in, in the war stories. You know, you and I all are sure when we go to the National Association of Black Journalists, people are always telling war stories. What was it like back in the day when you were in a newsroom? And when I told my story and the students understood finally that I had grown up in the Jim Crow South, and in some cases I had to define what Jim Crow was because they, they, had, they were not familiar with that, they had great respect for the fact that I had become a leader. And they asked me sometimes, when are you going to write your stories? When are you going to tell your stories in writing? Because we want to hear more about it. We want to read more about it. And so they really encouraged me. That was the first encouragement I got. The second was from some colleagues. One in particular was my freshman year roommate at Spelman College, Tina McElroy Ansa, who is uh, an author in her own right of five novels, Baby of the Family and uh, the hand I fan with in ugly ways. And Tina and I are still very, very close friends. And she also encouraged me to write this story. So she's my, I call her my writing coach um, because she kind of got me through the writing process because it is a different kind of writing from writing journalistically, writing a memoir. So I'm really happy to share my story, but I really am sharing it mostly for young people to inspire them because I want them to know that you can come from anywhere and do anything what in your story were you most concerned about sharing that you maybe almost didn't put it in the book? Well, there are some things that didn't make it in the book, not all just because I didn't want to share them, but because, um, because there wasn't space. I think I really struggled with some of the Jim Crow stories because I wonder if people who are living in today's generations and some of the younger generations really want to believe that there was a time when we were told where we could go, what we could do, how we were educated, where we would, where in some cases, where we could eat restaurants and things like that. And of course, where we took a sip of water and where we could go to the bathroom. I, I was able to tell some of those stories, but there are so many other stories that I just didn't feel like sharing. But more importantly, there are stories that I did share in the book about some of my own shortcomings, my own frailties, some of my, um, you know, there's one story that happened in the Montgomery newsroom that really shook me up and put me in a meltdown because there was, I was, I guess you would call it bullied um, on a, in a racist manner through email. Someone who I have no idea who he, and I assume it's a he, based on his name that he gave me, um, really bullied me in front of my staff by sending emails throughout the newsroom. And it took me a few days to realize that everybody was reading these newsrooms. And when I realized that, I really had a meltdown. But I had to also share that I, I gained the strength by the end of the day of that meltdown. I came back to work, and the publisher supported me and, and articulated to the staff that he supported me and that I was the executive editor and that I would remain the executive editor. But that was really a painful story that I had to share. And I'll tell you, sometimes through some of the stories that I shared, I, I had tears in my eyes because I realized how much they affected me and that I hadn't really come to terms with some of these experiences myself until I started writing about them. And so then was it a cathartic exercise for you to to tell these stories, to think about them, to deal with them, and to perhaps process emotions that you'd not processed previously? A absolutely. It, it really was a cathartic experience, you know. Things like things that are, people are going through today with the Me Too generation. And so for me, having to remember 
something that feels today like sexual harassment, and I don't mean that I was assaulted in any way because I was not, but there was a situation at the Washington Post that I shared in the book where I I now realize that that was sexual harassment. We didn't even have a term for it back in the 70s. It was actually in 1975 when this happened to me. Uh, We didn't even call it sexual harassment. But then as I started writing this piece of my memoir, I realized that that's what I was going through. And so I wanted especially young women who may be facing those kinds of situations to note that you really have to be strong and handle them in a professional way but you also have to do something that I didn't do, and that's report it. And I, and I say that in the book. I never told anyone. I didn't even tell my husband, who was, you know, we were newlyweds at the time. Was that because in many situations over the course of your career, you were either the first or the only African-American woman in the workplace, in the newsroom? I was absolutely, absolutely the first and the only. And I wasn't the first or only at the Washington Post in the newsroom but I was put in a situation at the Washington Post where I was working in the composing room in the f- production facility, and I was definitely the only woman, the only African-American, and I believe I was the first of both in the composing room. And so I was working around a, a group of men, older, all-white men, who didn't respect women. I won't say they didn't respect me, but they had no problem saying things in front of me, it might, they might have been talking about their wives or their girlfriends. They might have been talking about some woman they saw on the street. And then there was some, you know, physical contact, but, but not, a, not an assault that happened in that, news, in that composing room. But, yes, being the first and the only, it's a real thing because people around you sometimes don't know how to handle that situation, not just the, the only. Um, and so we all had to learn how to live together in a in kind of a – a normal way, a good way. As you share in your book, because it's written for young people, especially young women, talk to us a little bit about best practices, being a black female leader in any organization and commanding the respect of not only your peers, but also your subordinates, some of whom may be male and may be of another ethnicity. Well, you know, the first thing I remember is the advice my grandmother gave me, which I do talk about in the book, and that is you have to, we as African Americans have to do better, be better, look better, smell better, jump higher, just do our jobs better than anyone else. We, we, you know, sometimes we feel like we have to be overqualified for certain um, positions or certain assignments. You know, in the newsroom, Sometimes it's all about the assignments you get, the place, the, the, where you're placed in the uh, hierarchy, where the kind of team that you're on, whether you're covering, um, you know, maybe the city beat or whether you get to do a national assignment. And it's very difficult sometimes to move up in the organization. And so my advice is to first get a mentor. Very important. I did not have a mentor in my um, educate during my education period, except for teachers, of course, um, and I certainly didn't have a mentor when I started in the business. I gained a mentor by the time I got midway through my career at USA Today. Um, so it's very important to have a mentor, and it's not hard to get a mentor, especially in journalism. If, if people call you out of the blue in journalism and just say, "I need you, I need a mentor. Can you help me, or can you recommend someone?" We're always willing to do that. So that's the first thing, and then take that advice. I, I guess the second is just to be better prepared 
Take some workshops. Now it's so easy because you can do webinars. You can do things online. But take some webinars and then join an organization in your, uh, among your peers, whether it's an organization of women, an organization of people of color, an organization just of your people in your field. But join these organizations because these organizations can be very, very helpful. There are conferences that we go to. There are workshops that we take. We, we network. We find out about jobs, eventually about jobs in other places. And so those would be some of my, um, my tips for success, especially as you ascend to leadership. Leadership really is about taking, um, taking on the assignment you have, doing the best you can so that you position yourself and people, people recognize that you could lead at some other point uh, on another team or in another way. What is it that you're wanting readers to take away from your story? I want readers to um, understand where we have been in the past, because I don't think enough people, and I mean people in general, understand what Jim Crow was. And And I will tell you, I had to prepare myself to write about Jim Crow. I read dozens of books. I read slave narratives. I had to prepare myself and put myself in the mind of what was it among those who were making laws that would give them the audacity to strict, restrict a class of people just because of the color of their skin. And so I want people to understand whether it's Jim Crow or any other kind of social positioning that you have to understand the past in order to do well in the present and excel to the future. So I, that's, that's the first message. But quite frankly, I want young women to take away from my story that they have a position anywhere they can. You know, I call it a seat at the table. In fact, I have a chapter called A Seat at the Table and the importance of getting a seat at the table. You know, when we're in, our, in the early part of our careers, we're sort of observing every, everything. But those who have a seat at the table are the bosses in the organization who make, make policy, who make decisions. And I want to help young women especially to learn how to aspire to have a seat at the table. Our guest has been Wanda Lloyd. The book is Coming Full Circle, Jim Crow to Journalism. Wanda, how do people get your book? Well, my book has been on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com for, for, and pre-sale for a year. The book came out February 4th. And so it's definitely available online. It is available in some local bookstores and communities. You can also go to my website, www.wandalloyd.com, and there is a clickable list of places you can purchase the book. The book is, per- uh, is published by New South Books of Montgomery. I'm really pleased with the relationship I have with my publisher, someone that I knew when I was working in Montgomery. And so their website is one of the places you can get some information about my book. But my website has a ton of information. You know, we've been um, putting our calendar online of of presentations. So I've been on book tour since February 4th. Yeah, I bet that has uh, sort of curtailed a little bit these days, huh? It has. It really has. This coronavirus has interrupted the book tour But we are looking for other ways to get the word out, including I'm now exploring some ways to do some things online, do some webinars, do some online um, speaking. I'm already booked with one book club in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to be looking at doing some things until we get we have the opportunity to go back out into the community and visit more universities and museums and churches and. Um, places that are 
open to to inviting me to tell my story. And, of course, wherever we go, we sell books at those locations as well. And I'm really happy that a lot of people have just reached out to me through the website and said they want a signed copy of the book, and I'm happy to have those conversations as well. Well, we look forward to doing that. I thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Again, the book is Coming Full Circle, Jim Crow to Journalism. The author is Georgia Peach, Georgia born and bred, but one who has lived all over and now calls Savannah home, Wanda Lloyd. Wanda, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Condes. You have a good day. Perspectives is a community and public affairs program crafted with you in mind. If there's a guest you'd like to hear interviewed or a perspective you think should be explored, let me know. If you're old school, just write me. 1601 West Peachtree Street, Northeast, Atlanta, Georgia, 30309. Or message me via social media. I'm Condos Presley on Facebook, Condo29 on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Be sure to listen again next week at this very same time as we examine another perspective.